Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless the ministry of the word now. Father in heaven, as we come to the preaching of the word, we pray that Christ would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and would minister to us and be at work in our hearts for the glory of our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So this is the sixth vision in uh, Zechariah's series of eight night visions, which he evidently saw in sequence, one after the other. And the focal point of this vision is this flying scroll. Just to hit the basics of this, that's what we're looking at. We're seeing a flying scroll, and the text tells us very clearly that it symbolizes the curse. And so this vision gives instruction about the divine curse, specifically its extent, its cause, and the certainty that it will be fulfilled. Now, we've been in the Minor Prophets together for some time, and you know that the Minor Prophets have had some tough things to say to us. There have been some some difficult sayings. There's been a lot about judgment and a lot of rebuke and, and that kind of thing, and we come to expect that from the prophets. That was kind of their job. But uh, if, you've, if you recall and if, you, if you've taken note, most of the visions, all of the visions really, that Zechariah has seen so far have a predominantly positive message. Uh, previous visions have been generally gospel-oriented. They've kind of emphasized glad tidings for the faithful. This vision changes tone a little bit, and it brings assurance of judgment for the wicked. There's going to be more of that in the next vision, by the way. But let's just uh, cover some of the basics before we really get into the, what the text teaches us, just some observations about what it is Zechariah saw. He saw this scroll, and the scroll was flying. Now let's put ourselves for just a moment in the mindset or in the perspective, if if we can, of a person living in Judea in roughly the the 5th century B.C. In those days, you didn't generally look up in the sky and see things. There weren't very many things that fly. In fact, even back in Genesis, in the time of creation, uh, when God makes reference to flying things, we know he's talking about birds pretty much. 
and other than angels, you don't see anything else up there flying. And so when Zechariah sees a scroll, not rolling, you know, you might expect that, like the scroll is going to steamroll the land with the judgment of God, but that's not what it's doing. It's flying. And that was remarkable. And because it's flying, that's why flying instead of rolling or being carried by a group of people? Well, flight is a depiction of swiftness. If you, if you think about birds, you know, and think about land animals, there are some land animals that can travel very fast, but most can't move on land as fast as a bird can fly. So this is a reference to swiftness. The other noteworthy thing about this scroll is just its sheer size. It's huge. It's uh, 20 cubits long, 10 cubits broad. Um, that, that breadth, that 10 cubits, uh, just to kind of put things in perspective for us, that's about as tall as a billboard that you see when you're driving down the highway. That's roughly 15 feet. 14 feet, I think, is the standard, but, you know, close enough. That's, that's 10 cubits. And 20 cubits, well, everybody knows that's how far you have to move the football to get a first down. Okay? 20 cubits. That's uh, 30 feet, three, 10 yards. Okay? You, you don't hear the sports announcers using cubits, of course. But, uh, yeah, you've got to move that ball 20 cubits to get the first down. That's how big this scroll was, you see. It's gigantic. Now, <clears throat> remember, this is, a, this is a vision. And sometimes, even in your own dreams, weird things happen, right? Uh, and so uh, it's the same with, with visions sometimes. Sometimes visions, even prophetic visions, show the prophets bizarre things. And so this is just uh, a case in point. But the enormity of this scroll... <clears throat> I think is intended to depict the fact that God's commandments are exceedingly broad, as it says in Psalm 119. The breadth and the, the extent of the commandments of God. And what we learn from this passage is that all mankind is under the wrath and curse of God because of sin. That's the simple message of this passage. All mankind is under the wrath and curse of God because of sin. So as I said, this passage first uh, speaks of the extent of the curse, and the extent of the curse, simply put, is it's global. It's universal. Verse 3 says, this is the curse that goes out over the whole, I'm going to say earth. Your ESV Bible says land. Um, <clears throat> the Hebrew word there is eretz, and Eretz can mean earth, or it can mean land. It can even mean ground. Uh, so since it has that uh, range of uh, meaning, what, uh, what should it be, how should we interpret here? Because, you know, in the, in the scriptures, especially when you're talking about Old Testament, when you hear the word land, it's very natural for us to assume it's talking about just the covenant land, or the land of Israel, Judea, in, in, uh, in this um, post-exilic context, but <clears throat> um, the same construction, all the earth or all the land, is used by Zechariah twice in the previous chapter. 
if you just take a quick glance at Zechariah 4, verse 10, and then verse 14, um, the, the expression, the whole earth, is used there. And in that context, it's very clearly a reference to sort of a global, universal uh, perspective. And I'm going to take it to mean the same thing here, so I'd rather understand this as the whole earth rather than a regional uh, reference. And so we see that all creation is under the curse of the fall, first and foremost. Now you remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, God curses the serpent, he curses Eve and he curses Adam, declares a curse on Adam, and the curse upon Adam was, cursed is the ground because of you. Adam was a, was a farmer, and now that soil that he has to farm is going to work against him. It's not going to yield its strength anymore. <clears throat> now, to be fair, the word used there in Genesis 3 when God says, cursed is the ground because of you, it's not the word Eretz, it's a different word. Um, but the point is that the soil was cursed, and we don't take that to mean, I think you, you understand, that it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve kind of scratch their heads for a minute and decide, hey, we better move to some place where the soil isn't cursed. Because the soil of the whole earth was cursed. All the earth was under this curse that was brought on by our parents' first disobedience, original sin. <clears throat> and we see that kind of described for us with, with greater uh, detail in Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul speaks about creation and the effect that the fall has had on everything, not just man, but the whole creation. He speaks of, in, in Romans 8, of creation being subjected to futility. He goes on to say that the whole world is in bondage to corruption. He's talking about the inanimate world and, and, and all life, not just human life. And he even describes the creation as groaning, right? And so that's speaking of the curse. All creation is suffering because of man's first sin. But here in Zechariah 4, even though those things are true, and they, are, they do provide some context for the extent of the curse that we're talking about tonight, the particular reference here is the curse upon mankind for sin. Look at verse 3 again in the second part of the verse. Everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. <clears throat> See, the inanimate, the inanimate creation is under a curse, but the inanimate creation is not guilty before God. Irrational creatures are under a curse, but they're not guilty before God. Not even cats, believe it or not. But, uh, no, the irrational, you, you, the animals... Uh, they're not moral creatures. They're not rational creatures. They're not sinners like mankind is a sinner. So they're not guilty before God. In this physical realm in which we live, man alone has defied and disobeyed God. And so this curse extends to the whole human race. 
yes, particularly to the covenant people because they are especially liable for breaking covenant with God. They had God's law. They were in covenant relationship with him and they had broken the covenant. So they're even more liable to God than those who don't have those privileges. But you know, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. Paul, as he makes that case in Romans chapter 3, he, he quotes Psalm 14, verse 3. There's none who does good. No, not one. And if we're tempted to think, well, you know, when, when David was writing Psalm 14, he was having a really bad day, and he was exercising a little bit of hyperbole there. Well, to keep us from being tempted to think that, it's repeated verbatim in another psalm, Psalm 53. No one who does good, not even one. Not in the sense of the righteousness that God requires. Ecclesiastes 7.20 goes on to say, There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And so, the curse is coextensive with human sin. That's the extent of it. And all are under sin. All are under sin. And that flows into our next point. We've seen the extent of the curse. Well, what's the cause of the curse? And simply put, the cause of the curse is sin. <clears throat> Mankind's sin, original sin, the sin of our first parents, resulted in the fall and brought the curse upon creation. The world's never been the same. Individual sin compounds each individual person's guilt. It compounds God's wrath, and it compounds that curse upon us. <clears throat> In the text tonight, there are two specific sins that are singled out. We know God expects, expects us to keep all of his word, keep all of his law. But two sins are mentioned in particular here. <clears throat> One is stealing, makes it reference to everyone who steals. And of course, remember, stealing is, is one of those commandments on the second table of the law, as we call it. The other specific sin is swearing, especially swearing falsely by the Lord's name. And that's the first table sin. But these two, even though only those two are specifically mentioned and, and called out as uh, that by which the people will be judged, they represent the whole law of God. They represent the whole range of man's iniquity. Why those two? Why specifically those two? There are other sins that could very justifiably be uh, used to represent and be kind of uh, representative sins to stand for the whole law. Well, someone did mention that uh, the third commandment and the eighth commandment, respectively, are the middle commandments. If you count them up and go to the, the middle commandment in the second table, it's the eighth commandment. The middle commandment <coughs> on the first table is the third <coughs> That there might be something to that, I don't really know. 
Some speculate that maybe those two sins in particular, stealing and swearing falsely by the name of the Lord, were especially prominent or um, uh, prevalent in post-exilic Judea. But whatever the case, these two uh, represent man's duty to God and man's duty to his fellow man, and they encompass it all. And you know that the, the New Testament warns very strongly against oaths, against swearing, so strongly, in fact, that both Jesus and his half-brother James in his epistle uh, basically go so far as to say, don't even swear, don't swear at all. And that's not, as some people take it, a, an absolute prohibition against taking an oath <clears throat> But it's a warning that, look, you're better off not to swear at all than to swear and then not keep your oath. That's how seriously God takes oaths. And so in Zechariah here, the people are being called out for swearing falsely. And then as far as theft, you've got several places in the New Testament where litanies of sins are are given, you know, to, to make a point, to, to heap up examples of man's iniquity, either the Lord Jesus himself or one of the apostles will, will cite a catalog of sins. And on many of those, the sin, the sin of theft appears, Matthew 15, Mark 7, 1 Corinthians 6. Well, what's the result of not keeping the moral law of God? The result is a curse. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. God is entering into covenant with his people before they enter the land. He says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform, confirm, excuse me, does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. By doing which ones? All of them. Cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. <clears throat> As our shorter catechism so conveniently and precisely states, sin is simply either lack of conformity to God's law or transgression of God's law. Either you've got this standard of God's law and you just don't measure up, or there are the demands of God's law, and, and you do what God prohibits. That's what sin is. And Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins shall die. Doesn't get much more basic than that. <clears throat> you know, when some people know and have God's commandments, they have their Bibles, they know what God requires. Other people maybe have never read the Bible or don't have access to a Bible, but listen to what Matthew Henry said. Those that have sinned against the law written in their hearts only shall be judged by that law, though they have not the book of the law. All mankind are liable to the judgment of God, and wherever sinners are, anywhere upon the face of the whole earth, the curse of God can and will find them out and seize them. So there you've got, once again, the extent of the curse. You've got the cause of the curse. 
<clears throat> and then this passage goes on to speak of the coming of the curse. It says, thieves and those who swear falsely will be, the words that the ESV uses here is uh, cleaned out. Now, what does that mean? I don't know if that phrase caught you off guard a little bit or left you wondering, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, this phrase that's translated cleaned out is a, is a difficult one in Hebrew, and that's why almost every English version of the Bible that you consult will have a different way of saying it. It's one of those things where it is kind of challenging to, to really get at precisely what, <coughs> what that word means. And so, for instance, uh, the NAS, I think it is, says uh, they'll be purged away. Uh, the, the New King James says they'll be expelled. Uh, the uh, NIV says banished. Or the, the King James just uses that good old expression, they'll be cut off. But that gives you the idea, doesn't it? Take all those expressions, kind of amalgamate them. And what you've got is a forcible judicial eradication from the presence of God. From the covenant people and from the very presence of the Lord himself. So no matter how you translate it, no matter what words you use, this is bad news for sinners. And this will happen. How can we be sure? Because the Lord himself said he was going to do it. That's how verse 4 starts out. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. <clears throat> the curse comes home. This text teaches us. It says it shall enter the house of the thief. It shall enter the house of him who swears falsely. This is very personal. This, is not, this scroll isn't going out over the face of the earth to deal with mankind kind of on a corporate basis, their communal guilt. No, this is, deals with individual culpability because it comes right into the house of the individual sinner. It's not only personal, though, it's inescapable. It enters the house. There's no sanctuary from God's judgment, you see. There's nowhere you can hide You remember how the scriptures in different places describe people that are trying to flee from the wrath of God Almighty, trying to flee from his judgment. And they're so terrified, they call out to the rocks and to the mountains to fall on them, to cover them, thinking that maybe somehow that would shield them or conceal them from God's wrath. <clears throat> but no sinner can get away from God. They always try, but no one ultimately can. What did Adam and Eve do right after they sinned? They hid. Tried to hide from God. To us, it seems absurd. But consider what they must have been feeling with the knowledge that they had offended their creator and broken his commandment. The instinct, instinctive thing to do is to hide but no one can hide. So the curse comes home and the curse abides. It consumes. Look at the end of verse 4. It shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. 
The curse doesn't just pass through. It pursues, it chases, and it overtakes. And then that word consume that you've got there in, in your Bible, it's the Hebrew word kalah. It means to bring to a complete end, to annihilate. And so the sinner and his whole house are utterly ruined. This is reminiscent of the, the curses in the books of Moses, where God says, if you keep my laws, if you're faithful to me, if you walk with me and, and with all your heart, follow after me, I'm going to bless you in all these ways. And God gives a long list of how he's going to bless his people if they keep covenant and if they obey. But he says, if you disobey, if you break my covenant, these are the things that are going to happen to you. And he gives a long list of curses. And, and this is reminiscent of that in a sense, even though it's so much more brief, perhaps, than one of those passages from Deuteronomy. It says the curse will remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stone. And so this is a warning to all sinners. Your sins will find you out. God's judgment reaches even into people's houses. There's no escaping. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. The Lord knows your thefts. <clears throat> he knows you're taking his name in vain. He knows all your other sins. You know, even, even you kids, you know, you've stolen, right? Maybe you took somebody's toy. You figured they wouldn't miss it. They're always losing it anyway. And you liked it, so you took it. Didn't tell anybody. You moms and dads, you steal in uh, more subtle ways. You don't report your income fully to the IRS so that you can have a lower tax burden. Things like that. God sees it. He knows all of our sins. Now this text is intended <clears throat> to give us a healthy sense of what every sin deserves. Every sin, including mine, including yours. Your sins aren't special. They're just as sinful as anybody else's. And this text gives us a healthy sense of what they deserve. This text shows us the weight of the curse that is due to us for sin. And if you feel that weight, if you, if you understand that weight, and if reading a text like this helps you see what sin deserves and feel the weight of the curse that your sins, uh, that's due to you for sins, only when you can feel that can you really possibly see your need of the baby in the manger. If you don't have a sense of what your sins deserve, then you don't need the Christ child, do you? But if you understand the weight of the curse, then you see that you need that child. Why did he come? Why was he born? Why was he laid in the manger? He came here to bear the curse for us. The Christmas story doesn't end in the manger. You know, the world wants it to end there. It's a cute story, isn't it? It's lovely. You got Mary and Joseph, and you got the manger and the little baby. And that's the end. That's Christmas. No, that's not the end. That's the beginning. Because that baby had to grow up. 
that baby, the Lord Jesus, had to become a man and he had to fulfill the law. God with us, Emmanuel, kept the law of God entirely. He kept the law of God perfectly. He never broke it once in thought, word, or deed. And then that perfectly righteous man redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he sends us to tell everybody about this good news. Because what is the extent of the curse? It goes out over the whole earth. And where does the Lord Jesus come to make his blessing flow? Far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. Let us remember that. Let us proclaim it. And we pray that we will have the joy knowing him as the sin bearer for us and seeing others come to embrace him and believe on him and have the curse removed from them through his saving work. We pray it in Jesus' name.